Good morning, welcome to Emmett Audio. So as we were walking to school today, my younger daughter asked about this birthday present that we're, we just gave my older daughter, who turns 14 today, uh, which is a couple, um, a couple sessions with a local neighbor who's an herbalist, just to sort of get to see and help out what it's like being an herbalist, because that's something that she's interested in. <clears throat> and the younger daughter asked me, you know, how does Brittany, the herbalist, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I said, well, it looks different for everybody. It's like saying, you know, somebody's a spoon carver, but how do they actually earn their money? You know, they carve spoons, but is that the thing that earns them the money? Or is it something else? And I said, you know, with an herbalist, some of them teach, some of them teach online, some of them have books that teach, some of them make products, some of them make products and sell it online, some make products and sell it at, you know, events, some of them make products and sort of do it officially enough that they distribute to Whole Foods or other places. It just depends on, on the person, how they figure out how to earn a living from the thing and for everybody it's a unique struggle. And this is something that I've talked about in my very first book uh, called Carving Out a Living on the Land which is sort of about taking over our Christmas tree farm but also just about thinking about how to make a life that you want on your own terms. <clears throat> and I guess this is me talking now is also a a first attempt at hashing out some ideas that I have for a, a talk that I'm going to give at North Bennett Street School in October to the students there. Um, that will be about making a living um, as a craftsperson. Because, uh, well, I need the practice morning and uh, and frankly um, that's the question that I can talk about that's relevant to all of those students I think one of the most important points that I identified in carving out a living on the land was that we each of us have a situation in life and the important thing is to figure out what the strengths are in your situation and use that to shape your strategy and you're always looking for sort of the center of this Venn diagram Venn diagram is those overlapping circles right and then you sort of see what's in the overlap between things and it's just a there's no like empirical way of determining how they overlap it's just a a way of conceiving of the the overlap between things and so the things that I identified was what does the market want what do you want to do and what are you uniquely suited 
or positioned to do, right? Because you can do something that you want to do that the market wants, but you're not well suited for it and that will fail. You can do something that the market wants and you're well suited for that you don't really want to do and that will fail eventually because you'll get sick of it, burn out. You can do something that you're well suited for and that you want to do but that the market doesn't want. Right, and that's sort of most craftspeople. You find something that speaks to you and you're like, yeah, I'm good at this thing, but then nobody wants to buy it. So the trick is, is to figure out what is the, the thing that you can do or make or, you know, uh, offer to people that is in the overlap of what other people want meaning the market, what, what do other people want to buy, what it is that you want to sell or make, and what it is that you're well suited for. And it doesn't necessarily mean uh, just skilled at, but also like that you have some sort of advantage towards, right? So when I started selling spoon blanks, the market wanted it in that Somebody asked me if I would sell them some of my blanks, right? So there was a market. I agreed to do it because, well, I was willing to do anything if somebody would pay me at the time, right? You know, I said, really? Okay, sure. And axing was the thing I was most nervous about at the time. So it wasn't that I was uniquely suited to do it because I was very skilled at it. But I was uniquely suited to do it in that um, I was already set up to do it. I had access to wood and um, and I had already figured out the, you know, some of the shipping stuff and payment stuff, right? So it wasn't just completely out of the blue. It sort of it built on things that I had already figured out with my spoon carving. And it pushed me into a whole other realm, which is sort of understanding flat rate boxes and human psychology of ordering sort of a standard amount. And what I found was that you know, the first person ordered three or four blanks, but then it very quickly, I had you know somebody say, well, how many can you fit in a box? And that led me down the question of, well, how many can you fit in a box? That would be the most efficient thing. If you have a flat rate box that ships for a certain amount, no matter what's in it, and you fill it up, what is sort of an average amount that you could fill up? And it turns out it's something like 18 or 18 to 20, depending on the size. Obviously, you know, smaller forms you can fit in more, but if somebody wanted only big forms, well then there's fewer. And I figured 15 was a nice round number. And what I found was that that dramatically increased the amount of sales that I made. If you look at sales in terms of gross dollars, because somebody who would order a spoon or a couple blanks, all of a sudden, was ordering a box of 15. So each customer, you know, I 5X'd the value of each customer to me in that moment because of people's expectations of this is, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a fake upsell. It was simply like, look, this is the most efficient way in terms of shipping. Otherwise you'll pay a lot more for shipping. Um, So it had a real reason, which I think is important, but it wasn't like I understood this principle when I was starting out. 
Uh, so spoon blanks for me was a good example of something that the market wanted, right? Probably half to two thirds of my customers now ask for spoon blanks and it's easily half to two thirds of my income and from spoons that is. It was a milk pickup truck. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to turn around without hitting my truck. So the market wanted spoon blanks. I was happy to make spoon blanks because even though I was nervous about axing, I also reckoned that the more I did them, the better I would get and that would improve my spoon carving overall. Like it would make me good at this part that I was currently the least good at. And then, so I was, I was happy to do it as long as I could do it using an ax. I didn't want to use a bandsaw because, well, at first I didn't have room, didn't have a workshop that would allow me to have a bandsaw and thank goodness because I would be spending my days at the bandsaw and I would get good at using a bandsaw and instead I'm good at using an axe which is what I wanted to be good at in the first place and then so be careful the parameters of what you're willing to do and then finally I was uniquely suited to do it in the sense that I have access to really good quality wood and so when you're selling blanks you know, thousands of blanks a year, that's a lot of wood. And to do it efficiently, you know, I'm at the point now where I buy a log, a truck full of logs and slowly chainsaw my way through them over the course of a year. That's a lot more wood than most people have access to. And come on truck, don't hit my truck. Um, so I was well suited to it because, especially at first when I was scrounging wood from the side of the road, like I had access to free wood that was of a quality that most people didn't have access to. And now I'm at a scale where I can afford to buy a truck full of logs. Um, it's okay. It's okay, Willa. Good girl. So you're looking for the center of that Venn diagram. And I would say of the of the three, the one that we are probably m most how to describe this. The, the one that we are most used to thinking about is what do we want to do? Right? Although sometimes we get fooled, right? Like I have been clear that I want to use hand tools. I don't want to have a bandsaw. And I think sometimes people back themselves into corners because they aren't 
as thoughtful as they should be about what they want to do. But generally, we go into, you know, sort of a fantasy of working for yourself with an idea of what you want to do. And the things that you need to think about more is what does the market want? And what are my unfair advantages? What are the things that I have an advantage in that other people don't that mean that I am well suited to provide the market with this thing? Let's take those one at a time. First of all, I will admit that I am bad at knowing what the market is. So, I've said this many times, but but many of the things that I sell were not my idea. Come on, go. They were someone else's idea. So the two most notable being spoon blanks. Somebody else asked me. Come on, Maisie, hop back. Come on. You got it. Let's go. Come on. There you go. So the two most notable being spoon blanks, which somebody else asked me for, and the Spoon of the Month Club, which somebody else suggested. And both of them, I said, really? Okay. Because, I don't know about you, but I'm not great at really seeing what people want to spend their money on. And I think this is because we know what we want to spend money on, but insofar as we are not representative of most people, we just can't really see what it is that other people would want. I've heard numerous ways of doing something about this. There were some uh, some hip-hop artist, I want to say it was Kanye, that I heard, and it might be an apocryphal story, but I think it's maybe true, that he would have the Olsen twins hang out at his recording studio and listen to stuff as he was making it. When somebody asked him, he said, you know, well, I consider them to sort of be the litmus test for teenage girls. Like, if they like it, then there's a big swath of the population that's going to like it. And so that's a, you know, a funny way of describing a technique of essentially identifying identifying a a target audience a target group of people that you want to really speak to and identifying people who can be avatars of that audience and who can help you understand if the thing that you're doing is good or not. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done. And I have not found that approach to be helpful for me. Instead, what I've learned to do is to let the market decide. So I share 
what I'm doing on social media and I can see through the response what it is that people are interested in. And essentially what this is is throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Sometimes stuff might stick or not stick by chance, but overall you do get a better sense of if somebody asks you for something, that's probably an indication that somebody else would be interested in it also. If somebody says, hey, have you ever considered this idea, that's an indication that somebody else might consider that something that they'd be interested in also. And I think as craftspeople, we can be too proud to just say yes when somebody asks us for something. I, I know somebody who I, I once tried to commission a stool off of. We needed a stool of particular dimensions for our house. I liked his work. I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, can I order a stool? We need one like this. You know, I can see that you've made several things in a style that I really like. Happy to pay your price. And he said, you know, we'll see if I get to it. I'm, I'm you know, I mostly just do stuff that I want to do. And he hasn't made the stool to this day. And I don't know if he's sold other things. Maybe he's so busy. Maybe he's so successful selling his work that him not being willing to do the thing that I wanted him to do is just a sign that he doesn't have the time. And more power to him if that's the case. I'm guessing based on where he is in his career that that's not the case. That actually where he is is a place that I was at um, years ago when I was starting out carving spoons where I would turn down requests from people. People would ask me, big thing I remember was people would ask me if I've ever made coffee scoops and I must have turned down four or five different requests for coffee scoops saying, no, 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 I don't do coffee scoops. Who needs a coffee scoop? You know, just use a spoon. Look, I carve spoons. You could buy one of those and use it to scoop your coffee. But people didn't want a spoon from me. They wanted a coffee scoop and I should have said yes. And it took me a couple years to start to say yes and really what it what it was in my instance was fear over not having enough skill to do this new thing to a level that I was sufficiently confident in to sell it to the person. I don't know what it was with this other guy with the stool, but I think as craftspeople we, we get tunnel vision. We, we want to make what we want to make and then when somebody asks us to do something we say no because it doesn't fit with what we want to do but I think we need to broaden our vision of what we are willing to do because often the thing that works out and that you come to love is not your idea it's someone else's idea okay so much for the market it's almost certainly not going to be your own idea that works out it's gonna be someone else's that turns out to be a good fit and you're going to make it your own by dictating the parameters of how you do it, right? I could have done spoon blanks. I could have done spoon of the month in very different ways that would not have been a good fit for me. But instead, I figured out how to do them in a way that actually continued my journey as a craftsperson in a direction that I wanted to go in. And so I made them work for me. Now let's talk about the other part of that Venn diagram, which is what are you uniquely suited to do? Now this has many components. One of the components is 
well, where do you want to live? If you want to live in the city, that's going to give you different opportunities and different constraints than if you want to live in the country. So I think it's helpful to have some vision for what you want your life to be. You know, we were living in the country and I didn't want to move. I, want, I was trying to figure out how to make a living living where we were. And interestingly, we had just moved from 10 minutes up the road where there was no internet back in the day to 10 minutes down the road to our current house where there was internet. It was also 10 minutes closer to the nearest big highway. And so all of a sudden selling things online became possible and teaching in person became a lot more feasible because it was a shorter drive for people because we're 10 minutes from the interstate and there's very few turns. And also my kids had reached an age where they were off at school and so I could teach. So my life sort of shaped what opportunities I pursued for a while and well and continues to. So you need to figure out what you want your life to be before you can figure out what makes sense for you. If you live in a, in a super rural area, but you have internet, probably selling online is going to be the thing for you. If you live in a super urban area and going to the post office sucks, selling online is probably not going to be the thing for you. Unless you figure out some process like with stamps.com where you can box the thing up this may be the thing that you make right you guys are furniture makers maybe the thing that you make is uh too big to sell online really and you need to go to where the people are so that your work can be sold directly to them i know lots of chair makers on the other hand who live in rural areas and they go to great lengths to box up their work and bring it to the customer but then that constrains what they do somewhat because you need to find a customer who's willing to pay top dollar for your thing and only certain things are going to fit that bill. So what you want your life to be will largely constrain what you are uniquely suited to do, but also your temperament, right? I'm, I'm a good writer. I love writing. I made myself into a good photographer. I love taking photographs. But I'm terrible at video. I hate doing video. Other people are really charismatic on camera. And that would suggest certain ways of pursuing an audience and pursuing uh, a customer base pursuing revenue streams that are not suitable for me. Almost always the things that work out are where you take a whole stack of things that you're well suited for and you figure out sort of how to make them layer together to add up into something that makes you unique to yourself and able to pursue something that nobody else has pursued yet. So uh, a good example for me is um, I saw about five years ago, maybe six years ago, that there was a hole in the spoon carving market, which is that there was no magazine yet. 
and and yet there was starting to be enough interest in it that it felt like sort of that moment in the 80s where the thrasher magazine came around and all of a sudden you know skateboarding culture sort of had a voice had a place where people could learn about it and i wanted to do that for spoon carving and so and so i began and and what i found was that putting out a quarterly print magazine was well suited to some of my skills right i'm a good writer and editor and photographer and so producing the material was easy for me editing other people's work was easy for me and and had some advantages of of making those connections where i was bad was in the actual formatting of the magazine and i also struggled with setting up the back-end systems of the magazine and thankfully this guy reached out and said hey i'm a spoon carver and i would love to help you seems like you know you could use the help and i thankfully said yes his name's mike he's he's now he formats the magazine and he also uh, started the process of taking over the back end of the magazine after working together for four and a half years. And we've been through a lot together. And he was the one who formatted my book. We formatted my book together um, that just got published. And so that brings me to the next thing, which is that You might have many of the pieces to a, to a particular puzzle in hand, but you might need to find somebody who complements you in those aspects where you are not strong enough. And there's a, there's a catch-22 here because anytime that you work with somebody it's both a strength and a weakness it's a strength because you can accomplish so much more together by combining your strengths but it's a weakness because if your lives take you further apart from each other well then you have now you now have to find somebody to replace that role that you have let somebody else grow the muscles for and that can be easier or harder, depending on the circumstance, right? And so my intuition is that in some things, you should try to figure them out for yourself. I've recently started on a, a couple-year process of getting better at bookkeeping systems for my business after years of having my wife helping me with QuickBooks I decided that I wanted to get confident enough with them that I could handle all the things myself and what I found which should be no surprise is that that confidence has gone a long way towards helping me think about how to make my business better Right? Until you are actually educated in something, deeply educated in the nuts and bolts of something, 
it can be hard and daunting and overwhelming to really consider large and small ways that you can improve something because you just don't know it well enough. Actually, you probably are in a reasonable position to change large things because you have that perspective of distance, but the small improvements that can be made or even understanding the landscape enough to know what large improvements could be made and to not feel too intimidated by the idea of it, you need, you need some skill at a thing. That said, always trying to do something yourself is not the best solution many times. And thoughtfully choosing where to collaborate with somebody because they are just in a position to do something better than you is helpful. And just be aware that that's a you know, you, that you need to keep that human relationship strong so that it doesn't become a weak point. You know, over the years I've gone from Mike, uh, Mike volunteering his time to paying him a small honorarium to paying him well for his work because I didn't want to lose him and I wanted to make it worth his while to continue to work with me. And for example, the guy that I buy logs from, uh, he has a farm next to the Christmas tree farm that I have. And he and I have had our differences over how he pastures his pigs sometimes where they get out and bother my Christmas tree customers. But I've worked really hard to keep it cordial and respectful because I want that continued relationship. Being able to buy cherry logs from him, it's really nice to be able to buy locally sourced trees, whole trees, at a reasonable price. Okay, so getting back to the Venn diagram, and I'm going to wrap this up. You need to figure out something that the market wants. It needs to be something that you want to do. And it needs to be something that you are well-suited, well-positioned to do. And my contention is that most of us don't know what that is. And it's almost certainly not one thing. It's almost certainly a suite of things. Because any one thing might not work out well enough to be the only thing that you do. Nor do you necessarily want to only do one thing. But you can figure out a suite of three, four, six things. That instead of pulling apart from each other and sort of dividing your attention actually build a synergistic energy between them where they feed off of each other and things will come and go I've had things that I sell that I no longer sell I've had services that I offer that I no longer offer I let go of teaching a handful of years ago and and I don't know if I'll be returned to teaching in person we'll see but it's not that I figured out one thing. It's that over time, things that met those criteria layered on top of each other until all of a sudden my time was full. And then once your time is full, 
you can start doing this magical thing, which is increasing your prices. I've talked numerous times before about how important it was for me to bring my prices down low enough that people started buying, people started ordering, people started getting on the wait list for stuff. And then once my time was full and I had continued attention, I was able to increase my prices over time. And if I increase them slowly enough so that it doesn't decrease demand so much that my time isn't full, then I can continue to raise my prices over time. And that has allowed me to think we are at triple the price for my spoon blanks now than I was six years ago. And and double the price of spoons now than I was six years ago. And so that has that translates into real gains in my income. Thousands of dollars more each year, year over year. And it all comes from sustaining enough demand that you can raise your prices and it is justified to people by the fact that you have all the work that you can handle. And you can carve out however much free time you want, right? You can say, I'm only available for working one day a week because I have another job, right? These are my prices. And price is just a mechanism for generating more demand. If you don't have enough demand for your work, lower your prices until you do. And be patient enough to be able to raise your prices over time instead of trying to maximize your price point now. I'm going to stop now. This has been helpful for me to think out what I want to bring into my talk. Thank you for listening as always. And uh, we'll talk tomorrow. I'll keep it shorter. Bye.